0: Okay, the book of Exodus chapter number one, if you will, in your Bible, Exodus chapter one, and we read from God's word, verse seven, and the children of Israel were fruitful and they increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceeding mighty and the land was filled with them. And there rose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. He said unto his people, Behold, the children, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply and it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us, and so get them up out of the land. And therefore, they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, meaning the Hebrew people built the treasure cities Python and Ramesses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were grieved because of the children of Israel. And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and in brick. And in all manner of service in the field, all their service wherein they made them serve was with rigor, with harshness, and they drove them, if you will. Now we go to chapter 3 and verse 7. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt. I've heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, I know their sorrows. I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good land and a large unto a land flowing with milk and honey under the place of the Canaanites the Hittites the Amorites the Perizzites the Hivites and the Jebusites now therefore behold the cry of the children of Israel is come up to me and i have also seen the oppression Wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee into Pharaoh that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And so, chapter 5 and verse 1. And afterward, Moses and Aaron went in, and they told Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness." Thank you, and you may be seated. The subject today is freedom, liberty, if you will. And I ask you a question, what does Independence Day mean to you and to me as we gather here in this church house today? On this weekend of the anniversary of the birth of this nation the birth of freedom in America what does Independence Day mean to you well a lot of people to be truthful would have to say I haven't thought much about it and I encourage you to reverse that and to think about it for most people the, this holiday means a trip to the beach or a trip to the lake Attendance at a ball game or a race somewhere, maybe a cookout with the family and burning some hamburgers and some dogs and cracking open a watermelon and sitting around and enjoying the family and friends. And that's certainly a a good thing. But I think even our terminology today has belied what is happening and how the idea of freedom and liberty has slipped from us. I rarely hear anybody call it Independence Day. In fact, I'm trying to discipline myself to say that instead of the fourth, because we're not celebrating because it's the fourth day of July. We're celebrating the independence of the United States 246 or seven years ago. And so even our terminology says we've changed in our thinking of what this truly means the fourth, not Independence Day. And as I read this account right here, I tried to put myself into that context and to understand what freedom meant to the children of Israel. Because here in the book of Exodus, the first three or four chapters, we have the oldest historically accurate account of political and religious freedom in all of history as well as personal freedom you know the story the children of israel had been slaves in the land of egypt which egypt at that time was the superpower of the world among the ancient nations and the children of israel had come there with joseph you know that story at the close of genesis And now the children of Israel, over a passage of time, have become slaves, back-breaking labor, a lifetime of misery and poverty. Imagine if you could, being a parent, and seeing your 10- or 12-year-old child carried away now to be a slave the rest of their life. Probably you would never see them again. They would be stationed somewhere else. And the official would come and say, your child is old enough and big enough. They can be of service to us. And they take the child and you have nothing to say about it. And for 430 years, almost twice as long as America has been in existence, these people had served as slaves, generation after generation, 12 generations, in fact. And now on this day and in this account they, they acquire their freedom and their independence they have lived a lifetime and never drawn one free breath in their entire life and now on this day they're free it began when an 80 year old man named Moses appeared and uh, he had been born in Egypt he was a citizen In fact, he had been a member of the royal family. In fact, his life had been saved when his mother had hid him away in the bulrushes on the edge of the Nile River. And now uh, the Pharaoh's daughter came by one day to take a bath, and as she did, there's this little baby hidden in a little ark that his mother had made and waterproofed and put him there in in the edge of the Nile. And the daughter of the Pharaoh found him and uh, took him home and raised him. So he was a citizen, or he had been back in those days, and he had been a member of the royal family. There's a good possibility he even knew the Pharaoh when he walked into the Pharaoh's presence on that day. But for the last 40 years, he had been a shepherd. About the lowest form of employment In fact, over in the book of Genesis, it says that shepherds were an abomination to the Egyptians. So isn't it amazing? God took him from the highest level, the royal family, and took him down to the occupation that was viewed as an abomination and then brought him back and exalted him as the leader of his people. His message to Pharaoh was very simple. Let my people go that they may serve me. And the Pharaoh's response was to scorn him, to mock him, to ridicule him, and to refuse. And really he took it out on the people because up until now the Egyptians had provided the straw for their brick making. Now he said, because you are pushing this issue here of freedom, You go get your own straw, but you keep up the same tally of bricks that you've been making. So he made their jobs even more difficult. In fact, he made them impossible for them to do. So God began to send the plagues. You know the story. Ten plagues. Each of them attacking one of the gods that the Egyptians served. And finally, after the last one, when the firstborn of every family and every household had died, the pharaoh relented. And he said to them, go, get out of my sight, get out of the country. And then, of course, they were not even to the border of the nation when he changed his mind and he relented. And he said, you come back. And they said, we're not coming back. And he said, I'm coming after you. He mobilized the, the greatest army in the world at that time. And they got in their hundreds of chariots and they began to pursue the children of Israel. And now the children of Israel stand on the border of the Red Sea and the chariots, the great army is pushing down from behind them and the sea is in front of them. Absolutely a panic, a crisis situation. Everybody's life is now on the line and the world's mightiest army presses upon them and then God miraculously opens up the sea. You say, do you really believe that or don't you think that's mythological? Don't you think that's somebody's account or don't you think that was exaggerated? The liberals for years have said, it really wasn't much of a miracle. They went through on the, it wasn't really the Red Sea, it was the Reed Sea. They went through on the part where the water is about three or four inches deep. And so they went through the muddy flats, if you will, adjoining the river there. Well, I've heard that. I was taught that in one of my college classes. But I rejected it because you can't drown the Egyptian army in four inches of water. And so I decided I I would believe the biblical account. And I do. I did then and I still do today after studying it for a long time. And now for the first time, think about this, in 430 years, the Hebrews breathed air that was free. What do you think that day meant to them? What do you think they felt? The joy, the elation, the emotion. We're free. No longer can those taskmasters come and pop that whip over our head. No longer can they take our children and make them into slaves. No longer can they make our lives miserable with never a day off and never any free time of our own, no self-determination at all in our lives. And for the first time, they breathe free air. What do I mean when I say free, freedom? What do I mean when I say liberty? I have a definition I wrote down many, many years ago in one of our early Bibles. You might even want to write it down because we need to clearly understand some of these concepts that we've grown too familiar with. Freedom is not the right to do anything I want to do. That's the American definition of 2022. Freedom, I get to do anything I want to do. No, 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 no. That's not freedom as is defined in the Bible and in our great documents. Freedom is not the right to do anything I want to do. It is the liberty to do what is right. It is the liberty to be able to do what is right. And so we're talking about different kinds of freedom. We're talking about personal freedom, which means self-determination. I can make the choices for my life that I want to make, who I want to marry, the work that I want to do, what I want my life, the direction I want my life to be uh, headed in. It also means economic freedom. I'm free to own my own property. I'm free to earn wages for my time and then to buy and to sell and to spend. Or to say, it is self-determination of my economic world, and it also is spiritual freedom—the great uh, or the freedom to worship God according to the dictates of my conscience. I preached a series of messages back in uh, a couple of years ago in January on this book that came out from the World Economic Forum. And the book was called the Great Reset. And at the time, I had people tell me, "Oh, that's extreme. You're out on the margins." There's that, 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 that book exaggerated things. Well, now the guy that wrote that has come out with a second book. And if you think they were kidding in the first book, then you you you've got you're just wrong. There's a plan in this world a foot right now and you can call me a conspiracy theorist, theorist or anything else but there's a plan to take away our freedom there's no doubt about that to create a one world state and the opening part of that book the, almost on the first page of that book it says you will own nothing but you will be happy how crazy how just plain crazy god meant for us to own things god meant for us to acquire properties to work to earn wages to be able to have as much as we could afford the comforts of life and so freedom self-determination politically economically the right to own property not for the property to be owned by the state in some sort of socialist dream and spiritual freedom, freedom to worship God as we're doing right here, right now, according to the dictates of our consciences. Freedom is negative because it's freedom from all restraint. And when that's the only kind of freedom we understand, it leads to chaos and to tyranny. One of the real problems in America today, freedom without restraint, freedom without regard for other people's rights. And then freedom is a positive concept. And that is we're free to be what we want to be. We're free to accomplish some worthwhile purpose in our lives. We're free to join things and movements and and beliefs and, and religions and to be better and more than what we are at any point in time. This freedom was so important that this night of the Passover, when they left Egypt and they gained their freedom for the first time, God said, every year from now on, after that, I want you to keep the Passover. And the reason I want you to keep the Passover is I want you to remember you were slaves for 430 years and now you are free people because of the blood of the lamb and because of me and because of my grace shed upon your country. I want you to remember it every year and celebrate it every year. And every 50 years, he said, I want you to celebrate it again. Leviticus 25, 10, proclaim liberty throughout the land. And on that day, every slave servant was set free. On that day, every debt and every debtor were released. On that day, everybody was back on level ground. Everybody was free. Everybody had liberty on that day. The year of jubilee, he called it. Now, what was the source of their freedom? What was the source of their freedom? The source of the freedom for ancient Israel was Almighty God himself. Almighty God is the source of freedom and liberty. Without his blessing, they never would have been free. Had he not blessed them and opened up the Red Sea, they would have died there on the shores of it. Never enjoying freedom and liberty. And without his blessing, they would not have remained free out there in the wilderness. It required miracle after miracle. He had to supply the food. He had to supply the water. He had to protect them against their enemies. Without God's blessing, they would not have achieved freedom and they would not have been able to sustain the freedom that they had achieved. The source of freedom for America also is Almighty God himself. And so we sing, "Our Father's God to Thee, Author of Liberty." Did you notice that phrase? God is the Author of Liberty. On July the fourth, seventeen seventy-six, our founding fathers—we refer to them today—declared America to be independent from uh, King George the ruler, a tyrant from England. And they sat down and they wrote this document, primarily Thomas Jefferson, but then the rest of them contributed. I have a copy of it here, the uh, Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States. Here's what they said when they declared themselves free of Great Britain. It's just interesting when you read these things too. Quote, The history of the present king of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts now be submitted to a candid world. And then they list, and I counted them, 28 injuries that the British had inflicted upon the people of America, 28 different injuries that the population was suffering under King George, who was leading England, of course, to persecute them. And then they began to declare that they know the source of their freedom. The source of their freedom is almighty God. And they say it four times in this short little article here we now know as the Declaration of Independence. First of all, they refer to the laws of nature and nature's God. In other words, they believed in the sovereignty of God, that God in fact ruled in the life of the nation. Then they refer to the creator. We are endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights. Founding Fathers were not evolutionists. The Founding Fathers believed in divine creation and they referred to God as such. And then thirdly, they said, we appeal to the Supreme Judge of the world, that's God, for the rectitude of our intentions. They understood that nations and individuals are accountable to Almighty God. And then number four, they said, And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, divine providence, that God again rules in the affairs of mankind, we, with with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. They pledged to one another. We would die. We would give up every penny we have in order to be a free people, to to have liberty as our possession as a nation. Down through the years, just like Israel saw continual miracles, America has seen miracles. Do you know how many people were in the Revolutionary Army? 10,000 people. Now, one of them hardly was a trained soldier. Well, just a few who had been trained by the British, and they served in the British Army before they declared their independence, George Washington, for example. But most of them were farmers and tradesmen and small businessmen. They, they were not trained soldiers, and they took their shotguns and their muskets and their pitchforks and their machetes And they went to war against the greatest army in the world at that time. And God miraculously delivered them. No way that anybody could ever consider that the British army would be defeated by that ragtag army of George Washington. But they didn't calculate for the hand of God. And then there was the Civil War when we were torn apart. 620,000 people died, soldiers, on both sides. 300 and some thousand in the Union, 279,000 or so in the, in the Confederate side. 620,000 men died in that war. And the population of the nation there was very small compared to today. The percentage of people, it, if that same percentage held true today, something over three million people would have died in a war. But you see, God kept this nation together. God used Abraham Lincoln and other people like him. And God kept this nation from splintering into a thousand pieces. We come to World War II. In the Pacific, The Japanese Imperial Army, one of the greatest armies on the earth. Simultaneously, over in Europe, Adolf Hitler, the Fuhrer of Germany, and one of the greatest armies on earth, a better army than the American army in many ways. And yet, America fought a war in the Pacific and a war in the Atlantic. And God shed his grace on America, and a miracle happened. We won on both fronts. Amen. Truly, God is the author of liberty. Don't ever forget that. And what's the basis of freedom? What is the basis of liberty? Look in your Bible with me over in Genesis, or pardon me, I keep saying Genesis has been preaching it so long. Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, the basis of freedom was a covenant. And it was a covenant between God and the people. The basis of freedom, a covenant uh, between God and his people. Exodus chapter number 19 and verse 3. And Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bear you on eagle's wings and brought you unto myself that miracle again now therefore if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all the people of For all the earth is mine, and you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words which you're to speak unto the children of Israel. And Moses came down from the mountain, and he conveyed that message exactly as God had delivered it to him. What is a covenant? There's four things involved in a covenant. One, a covenant is a formal agreement between two or more people. Think of marriage. Marriage is a covenant relationship. We don't call marriage a contract. We call it a covenant. And it's a formal agreement between two people. Or in, in the case of a nation, two or more people. Secondly, it's voluntary. There's no coercion. You enter it freely. You don't have to, you don't have to enter the covenant. The nation of Israel didn't have to uh, join themselves to the covenant here. Number three in a covenant, in a covenant, it defines the rights and the responsibilities and the privileges of the people on both parties in the covenant. So in this case, God said, I will provide for you. I will protect you. I will watch over you. I'll bear you up on eagles' wings. You will be the greatest force in the world if you keep the covenant. But if you disobey the covenant, you'll be a byword to the nations of the earth. And as long as Israel obeyed that covenant, God blessed them and Israel prospered. Israel became the great superpower of their time there under King David. Israel flourished like no nation has ever done. But then the people forgot what brought about their liberty and their freedom. And they went, quote, a whoring after other gods, quote, from the Old Testament. And once they turned their back on God, it was down, 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 down. And finally, it was captivity to the Assyrians in the north. And it was slavery to the Babylonians in the south. And it took them 2,000 years then, more, 2,500 years really to fully recover. So a covenant is a formal agreement between two parties. It's voluntary. There's no coercion. It defines what the people are to do. The nation was to obey and God was to care for them. And fourthly, it's morally binding. The covenant is morally binding. It's not a contract with all these little legalese in it. It's a morally binding uh, agreement that the people make. So based upon what happened here, the pilgrims came 1620. They left over there because there was no, there was no religious freedom. That's, that was the driving force, why they came to America. And what did they do when they landed? They had 90-some people that had been on the Mayflower. And the first order of business, even before they get off of the boat, they form a covenant, a binding agreement between those 90 people. It defined what the people were to do and what the group would do for them. It was voluntary, and it was morally binding to them. And they formed the Mayflower Compact, is what we call it. But really, it was just simply a covenant. And it began with these words, In the name of God. Amen so be it in the name of God so be it and then it defined those rights and privileges and responsibilities that the people had and over 150 years passed and there was a meeting in Philadelphia of the founding fathers and they called it the constitutional convention and they met there and they formed a covenant a covenant agreement what was the covenant Constitution in the United States. David Gibbs told you the other day you can read it in about 15 minutes if you're the average reader. And so many people today in America have forgotten all about it. This is the basis of our freedom. This formal agreement between the government and the people. A, an agreement that defines the responsibilities of government and the responsibilities of the people the privileges of the people and the privileges that we have given to the government. It's a morally binding agreement that we best not forget. And today we see such a tragic lack of respect for this, tragic, and my heart is grieved and I pine with the fact What in God's name is going on? We've forgotten the agreement. How could a man read this and find a constitutional right to kill your unborn baby? How could anybody read this and come up with the Patriot Act? I know we were trying to react to what the terrorist had done, But do you know all the rights we've lost since then? How could anybody read this during COVID and say, we'll just lock down the whole country and we'll close all these businesses and there'll be no due process, no judge, no court will ever say that. The president will just make an edict and do that. How in the world could we close churches? Did we not ever know what the First Amendment said? There shall be no law prohibiting the free exercise of our religion. (laughs) How in the world do you get out of the Constitution? that some businesses are essential and some are not. They're pretty essential if you're the guy making the living from it. Today, how do you get out of the Constitution that we open our borders and let anybody come in that wants to come in? And 53 people get smothered in a trailer down in Texas because of our negligence and our foolishness that we don't have anybody in authority. How do you shut down the pipelines and make the gas prices double and triple in the United States with an executive order? Doesn't somebody believe in due process anymore? How do you let non-citizens vote in New York? That dilutes our vote, by the way. How do you let prosecutors stay in their office and say, we're not going to prosecute the, the criminals, we're going to turn out the criminals. Where do you get that in this little thing? I've read this thing more than once. I'm not a scholar, I, can't, I haven't memorized it like David Gibbs has, but I'll tell you what, I've read it enough, I know that stuff is not in there. It's amazing. They do that to us and there's no resistance. Don't we have any backbone, any willpower, any knowledge of what brought about our liberty anymore in America? The basis of liberty is that agreement between the people and their government, between, in Israel's case, God and the people. Lastly, what's the purpose of freedom? In your Bible, Exodus chapter 8, the purpose of freedom is very simple. There's one thing dominates more than any other thought. Exodus 8 and 1. Let my people go that they may serve me. That they may serve me. You know what it is? It's religious freedom. The purpose of freedom and liberty is that we can worship God. And I look at my little copy of the Constitution again. I turn to the First Amendment, the very first one, first because it is first in importance. And I read these words, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances and in our amendment two, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of the people, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So the very first freedom the freedom to practice our religion the book of Galatians chapter 5 in the New Testament Paul the Apostle understood this very well and there's a monumental verse there for the Christian today dealing with our religious freedom chapter 5 and verse 1 Galatians stand fast therefore in the liberty Stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. And be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Stand fast in your religious and Christian liberty, your spiritual liberty. You know what Paul was dealing with in Galatians is a group of people who were trying to say that salvation is not, just in christ alone but we have to go backward and we have to observe the law after we get saved and he called them legalists basically and he exhorts the people look everything that you need for your freedom in christ your spiritual liberty and freedom everything was done for you at the cross Jesus Christ did everything at the cross. Listen to me, hear me. At the cross, Jesus did everything to provide for your righteousness. And you trying to keep the law of the Old Testament is an effort on your part to try to earn righteousness with God. And while we respect the law as the moral guide for us today in the Ten Commandments, There's no salvation in the law. The law has no power to redeem you or to provide the righteousness that God requires of us. In John 8 and 32, Jesus said, you shall know the truth and it'll set you free. And everybody quotes that, but what truth is he referring to? He's referring to the truth of the gospel, that he died for our sins. He was buried. He resurrected from the grave, that there were hundreds of witnesses, eyewitnesses who saw him after his death, and that through repentance of our sin, understanding we have all broken that law, and putting our faith in him and trusting him, depending upon, relying upon him for our salvation. He said, you don't need to go back to the law, stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free. You know what it means to depend, to believe in Jesus Christ? I think the best illustration I've ever heard is a parachute. If you were in an airplane and it were ready to crash, and somebody handed you a parachute and strapped it on your back, and they said, listen, This plane is going to crash. It's out of fuel. The motor is not running. It's just a few moments until you meet your maker. But here's a parachute. You jump out that door and you pull that little cord and you'll be safe. Do you know what? That is believing in the parachute. That's relying on the parachute. That is putting your whole self Independence upon that little parachute. And in the same way, putting your faith in Jesus Christ and what he did at the cross, relying on that completely with no attempt to earn righteousness on your own, believing in that is your parachute. It'll bring you home to a safe landing when the Lord calls your name and you go to meet him. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.